Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It sort of reminds me of Greta Thunberg. Only August of 2018, a little more than a year ago, that this Swedish student decided to strike for the climate and skip school on Friday so she could sit in front of the Swedish parliament with a sign that said school strike for the climate. And uh, how a young girl at the age of 15 already was using her voice, a girl who was even autistic, someone with her challenges, she would already start speaking up. And look at the global impact she's made. It's incredible. In starting and sparking a youth movement, in uh, being nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. And it just took that girl's belief that she was that what she was saying, she wanted people to hear what she was saying, and she did it in the way that was authentic to her. And I would say, when you ask the question, what can people do? Look at what that young lady did, a 15-year-old. So what can we do? We certainly can wake up in the morning and do something. But the key is to take action, to do things. Talk to your neighbor, talk to your newspaper, call your elected officials, but do something rather than do nothing. And don't assume that somebody else is going to do it. That's been a big lesson to me the last decade, or even what got Mm. me started is I was thinking, hey, uh, there's this climate crisis. Shouldn't the government be doing something about this? I'm busy with my job in the internet and advertising, and I've got all my problems, but you government leaders, we appointed you to go watch out for us. Well, guess what? They're not doing a thing about it, right? That's the problem. And that's why we've got to get back to, you know, raising our voices, the democratic ideals of speaking up, speaking our minds, not getting so busy with our own lives, but breaking back out into participatory democracy and saying like, hey, I I actually have a voice. I better use my voice. and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Wei Tai Kwok, a green tech executive and climate leader that's been honored with the Green Ring Award, the highest honor given by Al Gore himself for the work he's done with the Climate Reality Project. Wei Tai has entrepreneurial roots, having started and led a successful advertising agency for 20 years. On the show, we learn what made him leave that company so he could start working with companies that are combating climate change. Since making that transition a decade ago, Wei Tai has held executive level roles with some of the biggest solar companies on the planet. But it doesn't stop at work. Wei Tai has taken action in his personal life as well, making changes to his home and lifestyle to become carbon neutral, and spending most of his non-work hours co-leading the 700-person Bay Area chapter of the Climate Reality Project. His unwavering commitment to fight climate change is remarkable, and I'm so glad I'm able to share his story on this show. 
This is part one of a two-part interview where I had the opportunity to sit down with Wei Tai in his home in Northern California. In this episode, he'll share his insights about the climate crisis and provide ideas and advice for anyone wanting to do more to combat climate change. Whether you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or work for a company and want to contribute more, this show is sure to provide insights that will help you do more to help this cause. Hearing him and his story is truly inspiring, so please enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Way Tai, thank you for first inviting me into your home. We're sitting in your home and you and I had the chance to meet each other when I was at Tesla and you were speaking to our team about the Climate Reality Project and all the amazing work that they're doing, but more importantly about the climate crisis that we're in. Before we get into all of that, I just want to say welcome to Inside Out. Well, thanks, Billy, for having me on your show. It's awesome being a guest and uh, having the opportunity to sit down and chat with you about some of my favorite topics. Well, there are topics that not only do you know a lot about, but you're so passionate about it and you act on your passion, which I am so grateful that you do because your ability to touch other human beings and share what is really fundamentally core to our future and our ability to make progress to help the climate and help our planet, everyone that encounters you, I know has a debt of gratitude for what you're doing and what you're sharing. And I just got to say, the last time I saw you in person was in Los Angeles. It was at the Climate Reality Training Corps event. And one, it was a surprise because I had no idea it was happening, but you were recognized at that event. And I'd love it if you could start with that story because it's, I know it surprised you. you. You only had about two hours warning or notice And I know it was an honor to get this recognition, but you actually got recognized by Al Gore directly in front of a group of, I don't know, how many people were there? 2,000 people. Thousands of people. I think it was even more more than that. I mean, there was a lot of people in that room, but tell the story, man. Like, what was the recognition for? What was was the feeling like? Right, right. Thanks for asking that question. I'm I'm sort of blushing. Uh, Your your listeners can't see that on on, uh, the podcast, but uh, I'm embarrassed and and very proud of that day too. That's the Climate Reality Project, which is Al Gore's nonprofit organization. He basically, uh, after he made his movie, An Inconvenient Truth, where he was shown giving a slideshow presentation, he decided that he wanted to train normal citizens like you and me to get out there and give the slideshow presentation out in our communities. So he started uh, training people. He's given about 40 trainings over the last decade. And I got trained back in Chicago in August of 2013. And I was so inspired by giving the presentation and meeting people out in my community who cared about the climate crisis and who would talk to me about what they could do. And then I'd try to give them some ideas. It really inspired me and gave me hope that people cared about climate change and wanted to do something. I've given 95 presentations between 2013 and today as we sit here in 2019. And so uh, that turns out to be like one of the top half percent of climate rea- of the 20,000 climate realities worldwide. 
leaders worldwide. And so I think uh, in part to uh, of my activism over the years, and also I started the Bay Area chapter of the Climate Reality Project a number of years ago to try to get climate leaders around here to work together and to take action. So I was totally honored by this Green Ring Award, which is the highest honor that the Climate Reality Project awards to citizen activists and uh, in recognition of the efforts that they've taken to uh, combat the climate crisis. And maybe up to now, maybe 12 Americans out of 20,000 people have gotten it. So I, I just like so wow. uh, in humbled. I thought I'd, I should work another 20 years before I'd even be eligible. But uh, <laughs> so, so many amazing people have been recognized, but I'm, I'm really humbled. And it makes me want to work even harder to be sure and uh, to do more, to do even more and work faster to solve the climate crisis. But yes, it was a, it was a big surprise. And uh, they did only tell me like two hours before the uh, announcement. And they said, when we give this announcement, be sure you're not in the bathroom or something. Be sure you know, that you're ready to go up on the stage. I right. Said, oh, the only goodness. reason they let you know is just to avoid there being that kind of hiccup where you didn't even hear Mr. Gore bring you up to That's the right. Stage. That's right. It was, it was really uh, funny and an, uh, a huge honor. So I'm glad you were there in the audience. I remember looking down the stage and seeing you somewhere up there in the front row. We were row. right there in the front row. And we were, of course, we had our cameras out and yeah, shots I, of you I saw you down there. That was just uh, a, a wonderful moment for me. Uh, certainly a huge highlight of 2018. Humbling. Well, well-deserved. And thank you again for allowing me to have this opportunity to connect with you. To get started, let's talk about your story because you've had such an interesting career and you know, you're in advertising, you've owned your own company, and then you've spent 10 years in the renewable sector as a senior leader for multiple companies, would love to hear your journey. That's, uh, well, it goes back a bit. Uh, let me start just maybe 10 years ago. I've been in, uh, the most recently professionally, I've been in the solar and renewable energy business. Since about 2009, I was at uh, a company called SunTech Power, which was one of the world's largest solar panel manufacturers. Uh, they're based in China and had offices here in San Francisco. I was with them for a number of years as a vice president of global marketing. So I traveled all over the world to Germany, which was one of the biggest markets for solar, and of course to China, which is where we manufactured most of our solar panels. And then across the United States, really helping to grow the solar market and seeing the benefits of scale and the price of solar come down and become more and more affordable to compete against fossil fuels. So it was very rewarding to be in that business. I subsequently uh, worked for NRG, which um, in their residential solar division for a couple of years, uh, they're a big player in the US energy business. And then I jumped into a small company called Andale Solar, which was in the racking business, uh, racking parts. It was a turnaround situation. We were trying to get a penny stock to double or triple in, in size. And it was sort of upside down financially. Uh, we did not succeed in turning it around. And then I got into the energy storage category with an early stage flywheel energy storage company that was doing utility scale storage, because that is really like the, the somewhat of the holy grail of the renewable energy industry. It's, it's great that we've got wind power and solar power dropping in costs so rapidly. But in order for us to get to a world with 100% renewable energy, we're going to have to be able to store some electricity for the time when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. And that storage, uh, currently today, uh, lithium-ion technology has like 99% market share. And I've been frustrated to see that that uh, segment of the industry has not uh, advanced as quickly in terms of finding breakthrough technologies and dropping the price as fast as we saw in wind and in solar. And so I, I sort of thought that that was an area that I wanted to focus on the last three years. So I, I was working in flywheels, kinetic energy storage the last three years. And uh, that sort of brings us to today. 
Well, it's interesting you talk about the reduction in solar. I was just reading a fact that since 1977, the cost of solar has gone down 99%. Curious, what made you decide to get into the renewable energy industry and into solar? Because I, I know you are passionate, deeply passionate about the environment and about our planet and about doing something that's going to help it. So curious how that transition happened from a career standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I actually saw a film in 2006 called An Inconvenient Truth, which was a documentary film about global warming and climate change featuring former Vice President Al Gore. And it was down at the local theater here in Orinda. My wife and I went, Violet and I, we went down to see it. And I remember, you know, watching the film and coming out of the theater saying, gee, if what we saw today was true, and uh, we don't have 100 years to solve this problem, maybe just 30 or 40 years. And at that time, my children were just six and nine years old. Gareth and Shelley were, were still in elementary school. And if we only had 30 to 40 years to solve it, it was going to be too late for them to be the ones to solve it. And I suddenly realized that day that whether I liked it or not, the adults of today, I would have to be the people that would need to take uh, steps towards the solution. And uh, being a very analytical person, I actually uh, spent the next six months, do every bit of free time I had uh, doing research to see if, if, is the temperature of the planet warming? Is climate change happening? Is it human caused? And my own personal conclusion was definitely the planet is warming and humans are very likely the cause of this change. Uh, and my last conclusion was, and our federal government was doing absolutely nothing about it. Uh, not too surprising because we were at the end of the George Bush drill baby drill days. And even the first term of Obama, he did not take action on climate in his first term. I, so that got me really angry and mad that if even I as a normal citizen could figure this out on my free time, you know, how come our government with all its resources and scientists and expertise that they did not acknowledge this really mortal threat to the planet? And so I was just so angry and said, all right, if they're not going to do something, well, then at least I'm going to do something about it. Um, but what, you know, what, what could I do to combat climate change as a normal person? That's a daunting question to be asking in 2008. At the time, I was uh, actually the head of my own advertising agency, uh, Day Advertising, and I had run the business for 17 years. I had founded it with a bunch of partners way back in 1990. And uh, we had a great little business there. We had about 35 employees. We had some great Fortune 500 clients. We were doing um, Asian language advertising and building multilingual websites for them. And, uh, but every night I would come home from work and I'd be brushing my teeth and looking in the mirror and I'd ask myself, okay, what did you do today to be part of the solution to climate change? And every day I had the same answer, absolutely nothing. I was busy with my clients. I was busy with my employees. I was stuck in traffic. I mean, I had every excuse and I was tired by then. And, but I, the fact is that days went by and I, I, I was doing nothing. And it wasn't really before long that I realized that not only was I not being part of the solution to climate change like I hoped and planned, I was actually part of the problem because I knew climate change was happening and yet I was doing nothing about it. And uh, when that really dawned on me, it became like a moral and ethical crisis that I had where I said, um, I've got to, this is terrible. And I stopped enjoying work, the, the, the job I'd loved, the career I'd loved, the company I'd loved and put so much time in and rejoiced in. I didn't enjoy it anymore. I couldn't enjoy going to work. 
And in fact, the, the tipping point of all of this, what I was thinking like, okay, I've just got to quit my job. I've got to quit my company, sell my company and find a job where it's part of the solution to climate change. And I think the tipping point one day, you're from LA, so I'll just share this LA story. I was down at a bank and uh, a client, which was a bank in LA, and we we're helping them to build their website. And uh, their website, uh, we were we spent like 30 minutes discussing whether a button should have rounded corners or square corners. And uh, we we're at the end of that, uh, you know, should be square, or round or square. And it's like I left that meeting, say, oh my god, I've just spent a, the, the planet's burning, and I've just spent a half an hour talking about whether we should have square buttons or round buttons. I I've got to just quit this, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, that was of course something when you're in the design business, it's very important. But in the context of where we are as a society and as human beings, I think it's really, for me at least, it was unconscionable to continue to use my time, you know, being paid for my time as a high-priced marketing consultant to build this website, but to talk about issues as mundane as that, it really, you know, put an exclamation mark in my head like, this is the wrong way to be spending your time ethically. How can you look your children in the eye to say, this is what you were doing when the planet was burning? So I, I literally, that, that, from that day forward, I said, okay, I got I to gotta make a change. And so I uh, make long story short, that's how I got at to SunTech. I quit my job and I joined the, look for another business that was part of the solutions to the climate crisis and eventually got into the solar energy business with the idea that the more marketing and advertising and sales of a product like solar, then the better for our planet to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. Since making that decision, you've been in the solar sector and clearly with some amazing roles and amazing opportunities to help these companies grow, SunTech being one of the largest solar panel manufacturers in the world, and you got exposure to this industry. Did you know immediately you wanted to do solar or what was the reason that you chose that industry over something else that could also be doing something good for the planet? Yeah, I think at, when I was, uh, after I'd seen the movie and I was trying to, I decided to quit my job, I was trying to think, well, what should you do to be part of the solution to the climate crisis? Should I join the government and get into policymaking? Should I go join a nonprofit that works on climate change or what is it that you do to, to fight climate change? And I, I realized that actually I'm only good at one thing and that's like business. I like business. I like making money. I like doing, providing services and getting rewarded for good service or good products and making a profit. And so I started to focus, okay, I, I, I'm going to do business. And so then it was more around, okay, is it wind, solar, even back then, there was some battery storage. And I, I think uh, actually through LinkedIn and some of these social networks where I started to communicate out that, hey, I'm looking to change my career. All of you guys think of me as an advertising guy. Uh, I use my LinkedIn network to say, I want to pivot my career. Does anybody, is there anybody out there working in renewable energy that has opportunities? And by good chance, uh, these networks do work in putting us together. So one of my former managers happened to be at SunTech as um, a senior executive there. And he said, turns out we've, why don't you come join us? And I'd never heard of SunTech at that time. I said, I, okay, sure, I'll, I'll go, go learn more. So uh, it really was the networking effect and, 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 and getting the word out there. And I, you know, on that point, I would say a, lo- a lot of people have asked me, hey, wait, how did you so dramatically switch from doing what you'd been doing for 17 years to something that you had no expertise in? Is it possible to make that switch career-wise? And my answer is a decidedly yes. You, if you want to do something different with your career and you're really committed to tying your 
your professional work with a vision of your of ethically what you want to do. It, it's possible to do that. You just have to tell other people about. It. Don't keep it to yourself. Talk <laughs> so, to others about it. So right? Tell people, articulate what you're looking for because they'll help you do that. And that's what happened to me. You know, I'm very appreciative of the fact that uh, others are out there looking for looking out for me and were able to help me make that leap. So I'm curious, prior to watching an inconvenient truth, was it something that you thought about, but just not to the same degree? Or was that the insider eye-opening moment for you watching that? I'm curious if before that, what you thought about in relation to climate change or doing the right thing for our planet? Before that, honestly, I, all those themes were things I was aware of, but I did not, I was not aware of the timing of how traumatic it was. Going. I thought it was hundreds of years out into the future. So that was the movie that really put the facts in front of me to make me recognize that it was an issue for our generation. Um, and I'm not, I haven't been an environmentalist before. I, uh, and even today, I wouldn't call myself an environmentalist. I, am, I think of myself as a humanist. I'm interested in the human race and uh, peace and prosperity for humans and doing, taking care of each other and doing the right things. And of course, to do that, we have to take care of our planet. I, I haven't been in it for the planet's sake only in and of itself. As beautiful as it is, as much as I like hiking and I enjoy the natural space, I, I would never have, I've never been so-called environmentalist. But certainly today, I'm much more appreciative of that. And I, I am part of an environmental movement but uh, maybe a little bit of a different angle at that. Well, if we live here and you care about the people that live here and our planet's going to be potentially compromised, it is being compromised, then yes, we need to start doing something about it so our home is still here. So I wonder if you could share, and this is not necessarily what I expected to ask, but I'm curious, why is it happening as quickly as it's happening? Why should someone be alarmed in the way that you were alarmed back in 2006, what are the telltale signs that it is this urgent? And it's not a 200-year proposition, but it's really 20, 30, 40 years. And we're seeing it right now. It's a now proposition. What is it that's making it happen right now? Right, right. Well, Billy, I think if we look at just statistically, uh, the temperature of the planet is getting warmer. The 18 out of the 19 hottest years ever recorded by weather instruments have been since the year 2001. And the five hottest years ever recorded have been the last five years. If we look back at the temperature records, these are really records that we, we don't want to be breaking. My children have grown up in, you know, they're 20 years old, 21 years old. They're, they've lived their lives in the hottest time ever on, measured on this planet. And that scares the bejesus out of me if we think about geograph, geological time, which you shouldn't see these type of spikes in such short periods of time. And I think the... And warmer weather means that there's more um, an amplification effect on the severity of storms like hurricanes. Uh, there's more moisture in the air so that when it does rain, more moisture comes down. Flooding is much more severe. And we're seeing that in Hurricane Harvey. Each hurricane, yet another hurricane to hit us, uh, is yet another record-breaking uh, one in a thousand year storms are happening every two or three years now. Wildfires out here in California due to the drought situation, these are all increasingly telltale signs that our uh, weather, this weird weather is actually related to climate. So I think the signs are all around us. Once we start to put the pieces together, we realize that we probably, we don't have as much time as we think. And in fact, the United Nations uh, issued a report last October saying that we only really have 12 more years left between, between now and 2030 
to take strong action to avert the climate crisis in order to uh, avert the worst effects of it. And I think so uh, that whole 30 to 40 years, we probably really had even less than that. So it worries me that that scares the bejesus out of me. And, and it, it motivates me to make every day count. What are those worst effects? You said 12 years. What, let's just say that we did nothing. What would potentially happen in 12 years? Well, if we did nothing, the nothing piece is, uh, the thing to be concerned about is the increase of greenhouse gases that, we're, that humans are emitting into the atmosphere. The leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions is the burning of fossil fuels, meaning the gasoline from our cars, burning coal to fire up electricity, uh, natural gas, combustion, and so forth. And if business as usual, we keep putting more carbon dioxide from fossil fuel burning into the air, the greenhouse gas effect, the greenhouse effect will uh, continue to, to move up the temperature of our planets. And I talked about storms, and, uh, but we could look, talk about the melting of the ice caps, which we're already seeing, the loss of huge sheets of Antarctica and the rising of sea levels. And uh, certain cities like Miami, which are at risk, New York City at risk, the coastal areas that are at risk to several feet of sea level rise. Uh, so that's just both economic damage as well as migratory. Well, where are those people going to move? Okay, they're going to have to pull up and move. I worry actually a, a lot about migration from other countries where we're seeing droughts in Syria. They had multi-year droughts. They have no longer ability to feed their families. They've had to leave and abandon their farms, move into cities and then put pressure on the cities. And then they're, they're moving to try to Germany, Hungary, and other countries, creating a crisis of immigration. And we've heard about the caravan coming up from Central America. Well, Honduras and I believe Nicaragua, those, those countries are basically facing the same thing. The, the farmers there are not able, after a year or two or three years, you, you can't grow your crops. What are you going to do? What are you going to eat? You have to move someplace where there's more fertile land there's there, or there's more opportunity you're going to die on your land so can we blame these people for trekking north in a caravan up through mexico to america the promised land and here we are wanting to build a wall to keep them out of here well you know there's a reason they're coming and i i i think that we really uh, need to pay attention to these telltale signs and just uh, imagine how much more severe it could be in in the decades ahead if as we would expect more droughts to happen all around the world. So I think the pressure, we've got to act now while there's still a little bit of breathing room for us to find those solutions and try to make sure that they can stay where they are. That's really a, the best way to protect America is to make sure the rest of the world is taken care of too. We can't just take care of within our borders as Americans. We have to be thinking about our neighbors and elsewhere in the world to make sure that they have peace and stability. That's what equal peace and stability for us. Uh, I think this whole idea of focusing on us only, building walls around us and making sure we're in our walled garden, is not going to work like that. You know, that that's not the, the road to prosperity in my view. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I'm curious if somebody's listening to this and they think to themselves, I wish I knew what to do or I want to do more than I'm already doing. What advice would you have for that person knowing that maybe they love their job, maybe they don't want to switch careers, maybe they don't want to get into a career that does something quote unquote good for the planet, but maybe they're also willing to do that. What, what advice do you have for that person? Well, I think the number one thing you can do to fight climate change actually is not changing your light bulbs or not buying an electric vehicle or not putting solar panels on your roof. It's speaking up. 
and saying something and that you're concerned, speaking up as a, to share with your family and your network and friends that climate change worries you, that you want to do something about it and creating a conversation. Because if we don't talk about it, we are not going to solve the problem. If we silently in our homes uh, act as better citizens to change our light bulbs, that's not as good as if we are loud about it and are talking about it, even as so-called controversial as that might be. But that's really the necessary path for a democracy is to what we want changed, we better be talking about it and create a community discussion and then get the masses to work on a solution and, and, and let our policymakers know that we care about this. Otherwise, they'll say, you know, we, we don't care about it, right? So I think talking about it, number one, is what I would say is a leading thing to do. But that being said, uh, there are many things that uh, I do in my home that uh, I was telling you a little earlier that I decided this summer to retrofit my house and get rid of all fossil fuels, something that I hadn't even thought about for years before. I thought I was stuck with my gas hot water heater or my, my gas furnace. But it turns out uh, when I did a little more research and I educated myself on some solutions that it, these are cost effective and it, it just a little bit of education allowed me to move forward with some projects that uh, I was able to convert my gas cooktop to an induction electric cooktop. I converted my gas fireplace to an electric fireplace, which I thought looked really ugly, those electric fireplaces, but they've made the technology so much better now. They have some really good-looking electric fireplaces. Anyways, I think there are actually opportunities all around us if we check them out, educate us. You know, There's only a certain amount of time in the day, so I don't have time to go looking at all these things, but wherever I do turn, I, it's sort of fun to find and discover things we can do in our personal life that can also be part of the solution to the climate crisis. But I do think that as Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org has said, and it really resonates with me, he says, the time for personal action to be part of the solution is too late. If we'd done that 30 or 40 years ago and everybody did that, we wouldn't have today's climate crisis. Today, if we want to make progress on this, we must do more than personal action. We must work with others. We must work in groups. And, and press urgently for action. And to me, that means that joining up with a nonprofit organization, like uh, that's what I do with the Climate Reality Project as a nonprofit. We work with hundreds of other people in my community to take action together and press cities, counties, states to change the policies that will move the needle on greenhouse gas reductions. But basically the idea of even if we like to work by ourselves, we got to get out there and work with others and, and join forces to fight the climate crisis. So I, I, Bill McKibben really inspires me in that thinking that the time of personal action is, it's too, is beyond us. We've got to do group action. Now. What a fascinating insight. It, it's too late to do it just solo. We have to work together. We have to scream from the mountaintops and work in groups to actually impact and make the kind of change that we need to make as quickly as we need to make it. When I think about the fact that this country has sort of politicized the entire climate crisis and made it a us versus them, and there are so many people that feel if they have a certain political belief that somehow they have to believe that the climate crisis is false. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that uh, we, can, we can blame Al Gore for that in a way that he made this movie. It was so compelling and uh, really insightful. And yet he's such a prominent Democrat, right? At a time where 
you had a very prominent Democrat saying climate change. And so if you're maybe a different party, you're saying, well, we're going to be opposite of what, you know, that's our politics today, isn't it? It's like if uh, Republicans say this, then the Democrats are just the opposite, just to be, you know, in spite of them, right? Uh, this is only happening in American politics. Around the world, conservatives and, and liberals, there's not a dichotomy That's on right. uh, the belief of climate change happening or taking action there. There are different uh, beliefs in the approach. There might be a more progressive approach or conservative approach to how we deal with the climate crisis. But based on the Paris Climate Accord, which passed in 2015 unanimously by over 196 countries of the world, it seems like there's pretty unanimous consensus that this is happening. And it, it isn't political in terms of whether it's the science. But I think in America, sadly, uh, it seems to be the science is even politicized. And I hope as a country, I'm only halfway joking by saying it's Al Gore's fault. I'm hugely grateful that he's brought this attention to our to the world's attention. But I'm sad that in the political environment we've been in the last decade, that 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 he as the messenger being you know from the Democratic Party, that that has stymied progress in our country due to our petty politics. And uh, that didn't happen around the world. So I say shame on us as Americans. We're better than that. Uh, let's let's get over that. Let's try to pull together. And I think actually the good news, I think the parties, I'm hopeful that actually in the next couple of years that we're, we're going to see both parties recognize this, partly because the, the, the damages and the impacts are so obvious now that conservatives who should ordinarily be about conserving the environment, I, I do think that's a core value to them. And I, I, I look forward to the time that we'll be debating policy, you know, what policy is it? Carbon tax or cap and trade better? You know, that'd be the place for Republicans and Democrats to differ rather than to say right. action or no action. That's it's, that shouldn't be debated. It's not a matter of whether or not we should do something. It's maybe a matter of how we do something. Yeah, right. That's more reasonable. Uh, that's a debate I'd, I'd love to see. And I, I hope we're entering that, that phase, even despite our current uh, president. But, uh, you know, I'd say a few things about our current president, number 45. The, the fact that he was elected, I, I've seen so many people come into the climate movement from a point of frustration and anger. And that's what got me in 10 years ago. I was frustrated and angry back then. And today I still am, but you know I'm actually glad that there's so many more people that are being drawn in because of that frustration that and anger. So maybe <laughs> 10 years from now, we're going to thank yeah. number 45 for coming in because he was a catalyst that got people off the benches. It's going to counterbalance what we lost as a result of Al Gore being uh, such a champion for this cause and this movement that is so vitally important to our future. And I get why you would say that even in a jokingly way, because sadly, people do align themselves with a person not thinking about what is the real root issue. Curious, when you talk about speaking up and speaking out about this, you've done that. You're not just, these are not just hollow words that you say, you, as you said, you've presented 95 times. I mean, that's a lot of presentations on this. And I know one of the biggest things that the Climate Reality Project does is train individuals, people to understand the climate crisis that we're in and also how to speak about it. That's one organization that's doing phenomenal things. Curious, what other suggestions do you have for somebody to speak out? I mean, that would be one. So maybe you could talk about that process. But in what other ways can people not be silent? 
Right, right. Well, uh, speaking as to getting trained formally by, by Mr. Gore, he does four trainings a year, uh, typically two in the United States and two overseas each year. Uh, coming up in 2020, I've heard that we're going to do all four trainings in the United States. So for your American listeners, it'd be a chance if they're interested to go to these free trainings. There's no charge. If You have to apply, but if you're accepted, there's no charge to go for the three days. And Mr. Gore is on stage, as you know, Billy, for almost 80% of the time, uh, moderating and speaking, and he's a fantastic speaker and facilitator. Best speaker I've ever seen. Uh, Unbelievably knowledgeable, inspiring, humble, and so forth. But that's a great way to get a crash course, climate change and what you can do. Listeners who are interested, you know, Google Climate Reality Project training, check out when the next ones are going to happen. Other from that, I would say that getting involved in our communities and and speaking out and, and not having to do it by yourself because a lot of us think, wow, this climate thing is really complicated. It's so confusing. How could I know enough to say something? That's how I felt certainly a decade ago. And certainly even how I feel today as, as and I, I spend all my time reading about climate change issues and solutions. It's, it is pretty complicated. But what is actually simple is that we have to keep fossil fuels in the ground uh, right, we have to do things that reduce the massively and quickly reduce the use of fossil fuels and massively increase the use of renewable energy. And so, at very core, it's actually a pretty simple proposition that we have to do. And learning to speak up and joining other groups to write letters to the editor. I hadn't written a letter that took me until I was like forty-five years old before somebody told me the value of writing a letter to the editor, and which are usually like three sentences long. And I wrote one to the. East Bay Times to say my concern about climate change and I want to put a price on carbon. And it got published about five years ago. I guess I was 50 years old. Uh, But just exercising our democracy and realizing that these tools are available to us and that we don't have to wait until we're 50 to do some of that, but we could do it before we get that edge. It it sort of reminds me of um, Greta Thunberg. Only August of 2018, a little more than a year ago, that Uh, This Swedish student decided to strike for the climate and skip school on Friday so she could sit in front of the Swedish parliament with a sign that said school strike for the climate. And uh, how a young girl at the age of 15 already was using her voice, a girl who was even autistic, someone with her challenges, she would already start speaking up. And look at the global impact she's made. It's incredible. And starting and sparking a youth movement in uh, being nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. And it just took that girl's belief that she was, that what she was saying, she wanted people to hear what she was saying. And she did it in the way that was authentic to her. And I would say, when you ask the question, what can people do? Look at what that young lady did, a 15 year old. So what could we do? We certainly can wake up in the morning and do something. But the key is to take action, to do things, talk to your neighbor, talk to your newspaper, call your elected officials, but do something rather than do nothing. And don't assume that somebody else is going to do it. That's been a big lesson to me the last decade as you, or even what got Mm. me started is I was thinking, hey, uh, there's this climate crisis. Shouldn't the government be doing something about this? I'm busy with my job in the internet and advertising and I've got my, all my problems, but you government leaders, we appointed you to go watch out for us. Well, guess what? They're not doing a thing about it, right? That's the problem. And that's why we've got to get back to raising our voices, the democratic ideals of speaking up, speaking our minds, not getting so busy with our own lives, but breaking back out into participatory democracy and saying like, hey, I, I actually have a voice. I better use my voice. And again, I'm, I'm a little ashamed that 
It wasn't until I was 50 year, years old that I wrote the letter to the editor. And uh, two weeks ago on September 20th, 2019, I marched on Washington, D.C. with a sign uh, to support Greta Thunberg on a global climate strike for students. And I'm from Washington, D.C. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. It took me until the age of 55 before I carried a sign up on the Capitol Hill to protest, right? I wasn't there for Martin Luther King or Vietnam War, but you know, so I, I, I say I was proud to be, be out there. And I, it was sort of a funny moment for me to say, here I am at the Capitol with a, a protest sign being led by a 15-year-old. Uh, <laughs> you know, what's wrong with this picture? Except that I, I was proud that even at this stage of my life, I'm finally getting active like I should have a long time ago. I think it's a powerful insight to recognize that we often think somebody else is doing it. Somebody else is taking care of it, whether that be the government or just somebody else. One of the things that you shared in a previous conversation we had is that you didn't or don't feel like everything should be relied upon the government or legislation, that you really think the opportunities and the best way forward is through business. Can you speak a little bit about why you feel that way? Right. Well, I do think that if businesses and business models and profit motives, and we can use the market we're a market economy we're not a so, we're not a communist or socialist economy we have used markets and capitalism to drive change for the better or worse in the western world and that's what's gotten us here into the predicament we have and i think the strongest engine to get us out of that is not through laws regulations you know do this you know mandatory this or that we there's going to be a limit to how effective that's going to be. If we change a bit of the rules of the game of what we value as a society and we have businesses drive to that goal and use all those trillions of dollars of capital to align them uh, instead of going one way, but to align them going the way we need them to go, then I think uh, that's going to be the fastest path uh, forward out of our problems. That's why I like focusing on business. I mean, I think we do need the government regulations to, to sort of help us uh, get to that tilting point or that pivot point and that that putting a price on carbon, for example, and and saying that, hey, you know, when we pollute the air, it's not without consequence. We better price that by putting a price on that that allows markets to say, hey, let, that's a bad thing. Just like putting a tax on tobacco. If it's unhealthy and we tax tobacco, then usage comes down and other innovations can happen. And so I think there's a role for government, but I, I do think that Western economies, at least, will, will respond best in terms of solutions if we can use market forces to solve the problem. Well, speaking of businesses that are doing some incredible things, the plant-based meat industry is really potentially going to be a huge chance for us to limit some of the, let's face it, major harm that's being caused by our factory farming and the meat industry. And you talk about keeping fossil fuels in the ground, but one of the things that most people try to not think about is that every time you do eat meat, chances are that meat came from a farm that is polluting our environment and ultimately causing major damage and actually contributing to the climate crisis. Well, I, I mentioned earlier in our podcast that uh, fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels is the leading source of greenhouse gases emissions in our atmosphere. And we need to definitely address that and keep fossil fuels in the ground. Uh, however, there's been a, a great focus uh, recently, at least for me, on cows and their impact on uh, greenhouse gases. And that is because cows, their stomachs are set up in a certain way. I think it's called enteric digestion, where they burp a lot of methane from uh, the grasses that they eat. And that methane, methane is 
uh, many times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And so as there are rising middle classes in China and around the world, we're consuming much more beef, many more cows. Cows actually eat a lot of, uh, require a lot of feedstock like soy. And so uh, I think that uh, the number from the United Nations is that perhaps feed livestock account for 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And it may be even more when you account for in order to raise livestock, people are burning down the um, rainforests in Brazil to make land for livestock. So you're, all that sequestered carbon is being burned into the air and you're losing that. So the impact could be even higher. Uh, but generally, as society is getting more affluent, we're consuming more cows, it's not sustainable. And so I've been intrigued by the concept of how do we potentially feed the world, but do it with less cows? And I'm very excited to see the plant-based meat categories. There's some companies like Beyond Meat that's down in Los Angeles or the Impossible Burger up here in Northern California that have launched their products to much success. And compared to the veggie burgers of the past, they're much more delicious and compelling and getting some traction on Wall Street. The Beyond Meat IPO just totally surprised me by how, I guess it was the most successful IPO in 20 years, wasn't it? So fascinating to watch that stock just rise like crazy from the moment that it went public. Wow. I totally did not expect it. And I myself have come out of the internet industry and I've been seeing many live through the internet boom and bust. And to see this stock in, of all things, plant-based meat, it's like, wow, is it that sexy, this category? But yes, it is. I think there's a lot of capital lined up behind this idea that we've got to feed people more effectively. I just learned a pretty interesting statistic uh, the other week that for every one calorie of um, that we get from a hamburger, that it took 53 calories of input to make that cow, right? So that's a, a very inefficient way to raise the cow. You got to put 53 calories of input only to have it grow and then slaughtered and then end up on your plate as a hamburger and you eat and you get one calorie of energy. A chicken, on the other hand, is nine to one, not 53 to one. So chickens are a much more efficient delivery mechanism to feed the planet, just in terms of calories in versus calories out. And of course, a plant itself is even going to be much, much less than nine. I don't know what that number is, but single digits in terms of calories in and out. So how are we going to feed a world of eight, nine, 10, 11 billion people? If you do the math, to do it with cows, you're going to need so much more land to feed the 53 calories to the cows in order to you get the one. It's going to be much more effective to use the world's land on a plant-based diet. I think the World Resources Institute, WRI, published a report last year that said the amount of meat that people should be eating around the world should be one and a half helpings per week is the target to be sustainable. And we're way beyond that now. So it really has been, I've been trying to educate myself on uh, the role of meat in our society and livestock. And, and can that be part of the solution to the climate crisis? I'm very intrigued and hopeful that some of the innovations, I, I love innovation as a business person. We are always looking for how can technology save us. And I think in this case, with uh, the technologies for great tasting um, meat alternatives that are based from plants, I think that's a big idea. It's very exciting. And I'm hopeful that uh, we can make a dent in some of them, both the greenhouse gas emissions, but also just fundamentally, how do we feed the planet in a sustainable way, given the, the land that we have available to do this in? Wow. Yeah, no, I could not agree more with everything that you're saying. And I, it's exciting to know that there are ways in which we can contribute both individually and personally, but also 
you in your career have made it a mission to always align yourself with companies that are doing the right thing. I want to transition a minute and, and get to the career insights that you've had, things that have been pivot points in your own trajectory career-wise. And wondering if you look back on your experiences, either starting your own company and running it for 17 years, or as a leader at some of the premier solar companies, what are some insights that stand out? When I say insight, I really mean this is an aha moment where something clicked. And you've already mentioned some of them as it relates to, hey, I, I'm brushing my teeth and looking at myself in the mirror and I'm thinking I'm part of the problem. I'm not part, definitely not part of the solution, but I'm actually part of the problem. What are some other insights that stand out that have been truly significant in your life? Wow, that's, that's a tough question. But I would say the one pivot point that meant a lot to me or impact me greatly was 9-11 and the crashing of those planes into the World Trade Center around 2001. Because at that time, as I mentioned to you, I had started an advertising agency back in 1990. And we'd been focused on, I focused my whole life on my business, my children, my career, right? That's what we do in the early part of our lives. We're, we're very career focused. And I just been thinking about myself the whole time and trying to win at my company level. I, and so I probably was very selfish and just thinking about my own life and how to improve it and, and so forth. After running the business for 10 years, we actually got acquired by a company called China.com at the height of the dot-com period. And so I was um, part of China.com at the time that 9-11 happened. And so everything actually in my life was going very well. And I uh, was very comfortable with uh, the professionally and so forth. However, when that incident happened, I, it really shocked me to the core to see, and I cried and I was so sad to see people jumping off the World Trade Center uh, in desperation. And I, I was just thinking like, why did this happen? Who are these people that did this? And why do they hate America? I, I love America. I think this is a great country. We stand, we, we, we've done so much good for the world. And it was really a, a shock. And, and the practical aspect of the weeks after that was that, remember the airports were closed and then suddenly they had to quickly figure out how to make sure this didn't happen again. So you couldn't have knives or gun, whatever. They wouldn't let you on the plane with. And, and the world we live in today to be fully inspected to get on. It was very obvious in the weeks after that this would forever change air travel and our liberties of getting on the plane and the sense of, could I have been on that plane? Would I have been died you know, in the tower? And I said, wow, I don't want to have to worry every time I get on a plane, but what about getting on the subway? Is somebody going to blow me up on the subway or on a bus or go to the movies? And you know, terrorism that terrorizes our freedom and liberties, it really struck. I felt that America was was totally struck at that time in our in our uh, America w would change and my life would change and I valued I love America my father my parents are immigrants from China uh, we I remember as a child we'd go put the flag out on July Fourth and that was something I loved doing my my dad was so patriotic and I I love I'm patriotic too and you know ideas of equality for all and um, it was very important in our our lives but so I couldn't understand why people hated us and why and that I didn't uh, I couldn't face a world in the future where our liberties and America fundamentally would not be as free a place for me and my children who were then only two and four years old. Uh, so the big question mark from 9-11 is why do people hate Americans? And that got me 
thinking over the next decade that America and the things we do and the things I, I was focused on, uh, you know, I was only focused on myself. I was being very selfish. I wasn't really thinking about what other people around the world were doing or suffering. But uh, being so selfish made me realize that you, you can't just forget about everybody else around the world and feather your own bed and say, hey, look how hard I work to feather my bed. Look at all the things, uh, you know, look at all my, everything I've done. I earned it. I worked hard to get it. I, everything here, I deserve. Because there are people around the world who happen to just be born somewhere else. It's not like Washington, D.C. like I did. They happen to show up in some poor part of China or in Saudi Arabia, and they did not have the opportunities that I had. They had a crappy life. They had a terrible, I mean, they don't have any opportunities and they had no hope in their lives. And what do they see in the Middle East is that the haves, the difference between the haves and the have-nots, the, the princes and kings who happen to have access to the oil, they are gazillionaires. And then the have-nots, they live in the slums and with no hope for anything. And they think like, how come I have no future? How come I have no dream? It's, uh, how are, why are these people getting rich? It's because the Americans are giving them all this money because the Americans drive cars. They have that whole lifestyle that America represents is the cause of my hopelessness. And I've got to do whatever. I, I'm going to go stick them in the eye the way I can. And I think that's why 9-11 happened. It's a wake-up call about the inequity in our system and why what I thought America as a great country in fact, we have a big blind spot to really the other people around the world. So I think that was a big turning point for me where, again, I was thinking like, um, I always like winning. I always like uh, if I win and somebody else loses because I worked harder than you. But in fact, there are losers out there that lost because it's not that they didn't try hard, but they didn't have what I had in growing up. And I, I feel from that point, a sense of need to find equity in the world and to try to make sure we're a win-win. Like, What can we do to take care of them because ultimately that's taking care of me and my children. If I, I seriously think about the people in, in the Middle East who have nothing, you know, what, that's totally unequitable, not fair. And here in America, we have that same situation where there are many communi disadvantaged communities here who happen to be born on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, as they say. And they didn't get to go to Yale like I did. You know, I got a lot of things that I thought I worked hard. Oh, I got to Yale because I studied really hard. And well, that, that's not, I did, but that's actually not the only reason I got there. And other kids did not have that opportunity and they didn't have the opportunity to, to work at SunTech or something like that. And, and I, I think I, I don't take it for granted. I, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities I had, but I think as a society, we cannot keep having that, you know, the top, maybe not 1%, but the top 5% just get better and better mm -hmm. at the expense of the 95%, which we know there's deepening inequality in America too. And uh, this is, is perilous to all of us. So I still struggle with trying to figure out how to make sense of 9-11, how to do something positive for my country, America. I'd love for people around the world to think of America as a solution to their problems, not the source of their problems. Yeah. How do we have people go back to the shining light that America represented in World War II as, as a dream place that everybody would want to be a part of rather than as a cause of their problems, right? So- the adults of today, it's, it's up to us to make that happen, right? It's not somebody else that's going to go work on it, right? We talked about this a little earlier. Is anybody working on that? Well, I don't know. I don't, I, I, it's not anybody's other's job to do Everybody that. thinks everybody else is working on it. Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, you know, it's going to come down to what we, you and I decide, uh, no, let's go work on this. And by, again, speaking up and saying, I care about this topic, probably attracts other people who care about it. And then you can create momentum to go do things that 
should be done, but you know, aren't being done. Well, clearly it had a profound impact on you. Wondering what changes you made in your life or how it altered you as a human being as a result of having that really impactful and recognition moment that, hey, maybe America's not really loved in the way that I love it across the world. After 2001, I struggled with that question to see what I actually looked for jobs in the government. And in fact, in my skills in multilingual website development, I was recruited or talked to recruiters from the CIA and the National Security Agency with the idea that maybe we should try to monitor some of that uh, chatter over the internet to see who's going to have another terrorist action against us. So as a way to try to my interest there was to see how could I help protect America more through the skills I had. And uh, I didn't end up, uh, I can't tell you if I actually did get a job at the NSA, otherwise I'd have to <laughs> not let you out of here. Uh, but I didn't join the CIA or the NSA. But I did think about uh, leaving advertising at that time to try to be a part of the solution to terrorism. But it wasn't until a couple years later in 2006 when I saw the movie about climate change that some of this started to come together that our addiction to oil and fossil fuels, which I think perpetrated the 9-11 incident, was actually a roadmap to disaster from a planetary point of view too. And that's what gave me sort of the aha, okay, if we can decrease the amount of fossil fuel use, that will help. If we stop buying as much oil from Saudi Arabia, and if we could power Saudi Arabia through a more equitable and democratic form of solar, where everybody could power their own home from solar energy. That's a, a democratizing engine of solar power. I thought that solar could be both an engine of climate change solutions, as well as democracy and equity to bring the cost. You mentioned you, the price has come down 99%. You know, the implications of that is, is really profound in terms of democracy and uh, democratizing energy, making remote poor villages have low-cost energy rather than relying on the guy in, who happened to be born above an oil well selling that, right? That guy got lucky for being on top of the oil well, and the guy who was born in, out in the wilderness was unlucky. No, solar shines on the whole world, so you've democratized that. So I, I think uh, it's sort of, um, luckily, that movie came into play, and, and that's sort of the aha moment that, okay, solar energy is, is a solution to both of these issues, and that, that made it even more easier for me to try to transition in, by 2009 into solar. Wow, man. It's so cool to just to hear the, the whole thing. And I didn't know the 9-11 the, the, the story. I didn't know that you had such a, that, that had such a profound effect on you. But then that you started to look for opportunities immediately after that. And then as things obviously transpired with the inconvenient truth, that really opened your eyes to what it is that you ended up doing for really over a 10-year period. And so now as you look forward, I mean, you have so many possibilities and so many ways that you're already supporting and helping the cause. You mentioned you're the head of a chapter of the Climate Reality Project, uh, the local chapter here. That's which, right. Which is 700 people are in this chapter. That's can, right. Can you describe like, what is it that the, the members of the chapter, what do they do and, and what do they expect of you as the leader of that chapter? You're one of the, you're a co-chair, right? I'm a co-chair and uh, the Climate Reality Project has over 120 chapters around the United States and cities and towns. Um, and in the Bay Area, we happen to have uh, for the 10 counties in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have about 700 
people that have signed up. Half of them have been trained as climate reality leaders, personally by Al Gore, as we talked about, having attended one of the three-day trainings. And half are members of the general public who are concerned about climate change and want to know what can they do in their communities and how can they learn more. And they, they want to partner together. And so as a co-chair of the chapter, happy to work with dozens of volunteers who put on programming and talks and events. And we, we were just out uh, marching down Market Street uh, and, and protest on September 20th in support of Greta Thunberg. We had people out tabling at uh, workshops and so forth to educate the public and sign people up. I think one of the local things we're doing is to target a local governing bodies with a specific greenhouse gas reduction ask by a date certain. Uh, what does that all mean? It means, for example, we saw that the city of Pleasant Hill, California, was trying to decide whether they should adopt a new community choice energy provider called MCE, Marine Clean Energy. And so um, there were five members of the city council that were going to vote on it. That means we needed three votes in order to push them and con- urge them to uh, embrace a new electricity provider. So we tried to exercise the democracy of our, res- our citizens and members who lived in the Pleasant Hill area and have them appear at the city council meeting to testify for their three minutes and say, you know, I care about the climate crisis. I think this is a good, effective thing. It's the most effective thing our city can do to bring 100% renewable energy in and give us choice. I want you to do it for the sake of me and my wife and my daughter. And, you know, my name is X and please vote for it. And it happened, uh, fortunately, in Pleasant Hill that they voted unanimously in favor of moving forward with a clean energy alternative provider. And so that type of thing of having our members uh, and that gentleman, we had a gentleman go to speak at the city council. He's in his 60s, I believe. And he said he'd never gone to a city council meeting before. And he considers himself active in his community. But that's just one thing that, you know, again, like somebody else is doing that. No, no, you go do it at the age of 60. And he said, it was the first time I spoke up in public and it felt so good afterwards. <laughs> really. And to hear that my voice mattered uh, in my community. And I think that's what we're trying to do as the Climate Reality Project uh, chapters is to get into our communities, have people wake up, do things that they hadn't done before, but to exercise their democratic muscles build up their muscles, whether it be writing letters to their elected officials, letters to the editor, showing up and speaking up about things they care about, and then seeing that their voices make a difference. Yeah. Because uh, if, if any of you know city council members, they most people, there are not too many people that attend these meetings and actually talk about these really nerdy, geeky topics. So if even four or five people show up at a meeting and it speak. matters. It matters. It really influences the five people. And again, we only need three votes to pass something. So can you get three votes in your city, your county, and so forth? And I say, yes. But again, most people are thinking somebody else is doing it. And I think that's the problem. I'm curious what roadblocks you're seeing. If you're looking at your mission is to do everything you can in your power, but also helping others see what they could be doing, what resistance are you seeing or what roadblocks exist that are preventing you from getting as much done as you really want to? Right. Well, I think that uh, I mentioned that we have 700 members that, that I truly believe that they are deeply concerned about climate change and they want to take climate action. At the same time, they're busy. And probably like me, they brush their teeth at night thinking, what did I do today for the climate crisis? They probably answered the same as I did. Absolutely nothing because they were busy with their jobs, their kids, or so forth. 
Um, I think we as a society are overscheduled, overcommitted, and uh, overburdened by the day to day in our lives that we're just not used to carving out that type of time and prioritizing these acts, showing up for a city council meeting. I've never done that. Or a letter to the editor. I've never done that. That's sort of out of our comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. Even as simple as that might seem, we, we just don't do that. Right. right. It's not something they're used to doing. And yet we live in a democratic country where these things are. <laughs> we so, have access to this, this ability to do so this. It's so easy to do it, but we just don't do it. And I, I think the biggest barrier I found is that people of goodwill and good intention still have those excuses that I had. Yeah. I'm too busy. Not making the time. Not making the time. Not And just trying to get people to engage on it is has been tough. I'm hopeful that as the people wake up to the urgency of doing things that they will start to reprioritize, uh, and uh, which is the path I, I went. I, I finally had to quit my job. I mean, I'd do something so extreme to like really get out of my normal routine, right? You had to get out of the box, literally quit my job, quit my own company in order to make breathing room to go do the things that were really important. And I think that's probably where we are at a, as a society. We have to sort of like really shake ourselves up and reprioritize. I know you're dedicating at least 30 hours a week currently as a chapter co-chair, and that's not an insignificant amount of time. Tethering back to what you mentioned earlier about the business side of things, if I'm an entrepreneur and I want to be doing more, what advice would you have for me? It could be any type of company. What can business leaders or entrepreneurs be doing more to actively participate? Because to your point, most people don't make the time. So if we could somehow make their time at work, also leverage that time to be doing something that's going to help us and help the world and help the planet, what would you suggest? Right. Well, I think uh, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in a business, you don't have to be in the business of solar panels or renewable energy, something so directly involved in climate change. But uh, whatever business you are, if you run a restaurant or if you um, are a consulting firm or an accountant and you are concerned about climate and sustainability, guess what? In From a supply chain side, from a purchasing side, you are buying things and making decisions every day with the money that you use, you can be putting some strings attached to that where you say, hey, my electricity bill, is it, can I be buying clean electricity and should I be opting up to these 100% renewable programs so that every dollar I'm voting with my wallet every time, my company's wallet every time. And when I procure foods and uh, if I'm a restaurant and who am I buying from? Am I buying Uh, from sustainable producers who are trying to, instead of extractive methods that uh, degrade our environment, are they using regenerative practices, voting with my dollars? And I think on the supply chain side, just in the number of dollars that any of us entrepreneurs spend in businesses, and again, we, we probably, we're just spending them, we're busy running our businesses, but I think we'd be pleasantly surprised that if we looked into what we were buying and we questioned who we're buying from and how they were getting it there that we'd find we have a lot of leverage, hidden leverage that can be uncovered by using a portion of your supply chain dollars to direct them in a, f- a fashion that creates social change. Beyond that, I think that, that companies can uh, engage their employees on climate. I think many employees want to do, know that their employers are, are climate friendly and hearing the employees and, and telling them, we care. Do you care? And because we care. And if you care and we care, then 
let's do something at this company and try to unleash that creativity by the employee base of what they could be doing, right? And give them some leeway to express that creativity, uh, some budget, some time, whatever it takes. See what enthusiasm you have within the group and, you know, sort of tap into that. So you as the, the CEO don't have to make all the decisions here, but make your, your staff own it. I think that that's also worked for me to, to see that. All phenomenal suggestions. I'm going to expand on my question, but now I'm going to take it from the perspective of somebody that is looking for an idea or wants to start something. And maybe they do want to do something that's more direct. Maybe they want to do something that's going to actually be not necessarily a solar panel company, but maybe in some other way. Curious if you have any suggestions or areas that you think are ripe for somebody to latch onto, whether that be transportation or the plant-based food. Those are just some ideas, but curious what other areas, because I know you've done a ton of research and I think the stark reality is most people going back to that time thing, they don't make the time to really research this stuff, to really find out more. You have done this kind of research and you, you're so passionate about it. Wondering if you could share in your research, you've already retrofitted your home in many ways to be doing things to stop taking fossil fuels from the ground and just making improvements to your home to allow for your home to not be doing that is just an example. But there's there's got to be other ways. I'm curious what ways that you could think of leveraging some of your own research. Well, I think uh, you, you could either be opportunistic or you could be strategic and analytical. So let's say if you're a strategic and analytical type of person, you could open a book called Drawdown, which lists the top 80 solutions to the climate crisis for reducing carbon. You could see from number one through number 80, what, what makes the biggest impact. Number one, actually, is I, I believe is around air condition uh, retrofits and changing and getting rid of the refrigerants and trying to reform these refrigerants, which are very, very high greenhouse gas problems. And so uh, if you want to say, hey, I, I want to work on something that has high impact, let me work in the air condition business and try to focus on ref- getting rid of um, and bring introducing new products in that area. Uh, that would be, I don't have any skills in that, but that would be strategic. Or you could be on the other side, more creative and opportunistic and say, well, gee, I have skills in, uh, you name it, food. Uh, and so let me now try to find out how uh, I could be involved in the food category in ways that might sequester carbon in soils by the way I planted foods and I harvested it. And let me create a business model from the ground up around who my buyers would be, what price points could I sell at. Let me create a business model around something that I'm good at. And I think for me, it's uh, my suggestion is more to follow that second path, which is to leverage what skills you have. And to do something you're good at already in industries that you have connections and know people. And I've actually discovered in the last many years that almost any category you're in has some sustainability ability in it. And if you could just go figure it out, you're you're probably just doing things the old-fashioned way. Why not take a step back, look at it through a different lens, take a deep breath. What's the uh, sustainable lens or carbon free lens and see if I can build a business model around that and use your creativity to use your strengths, your connections, what you're good at to build a business model around that. So that's sort of a general I love strategy. Those, I love both of those suggestions. Going back to the first one, the more analytical one, and there's this list of 80 yeah. items that are in rank order. That, that are ranked in terms of how much they're contributing to our climate situation. Is that is that right? That's right. 
That's right. And so that can be just from like food waste is really high up on that list of how we waste food. And so that means it's a gigantic problem that people have not addressed on. And if you say, well, gee, I'm not really in the food business, but I'm, uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm good at marketing. So let me go find businesses that are in the food waste category. And there's a company in the Northern California called Imperfect Produce that sells ugly produce, like ugly tomatoes, ugly carrots, and that would otherwise be thrown away. And, you know, let me take my marketing skills or accounting skills or sales skills. I'm just a salesperson, but let me go sell for this company that's involved in food waste. Or, or I'm an entrepreneur. Let me somehow partner with these guys and figure out how I can get into that ecosystem. And so that can be, you know, a strategic way to tackle some really huge problems. Uh, I'm personally excited about uh, the building decarbonization movement. And what does that mean? At least here in Northern California, it means, uh, or in California, it means that while our governor last year, Jerry Brown, uh, helped to spearhead an initiative to have all of our electricity be clean electricity by 2045, that's great. We're on a road to having our electricity be clean in 20 some years. But what about our natural gas? What about our heating, our cooking, all of the things we're using natural gas for? There's no policies to reduce that. And without doing that, California is not going to meet our greenhouse gas targets. And, and nobody's working on that. There's not like, oh, somebody else is working on it. No, nobody's working on it. So the idea that we could try to decarbonize a home, and I, that's what I did this past summer is I looked at what are the four appliances that use natural gas in my home and how could I get rid of it? Mm -hmm. And I learned that at each of those areas, whether it be my gas fireplace, that, hey, let's come up with a great looking, energy efficient electric fireplace, you know, or if somebody's already done it, maybe I can be involved in selling and distributing and retrofitting, right? There's, there's a whole category of legacy players who are used to installing gas fireplaces, but there's not a lot of people doing electric fireplace. That's a business opportunity for somebody. Maybe I could do that on the hot water heater side um, I, or, or these mini splits. I was just thinking like, hey, how come all these mini split heat and cooling air conditioning units are made in Japan? Uh, I used to work for a Chinese a solar company where the paradigm at the time was that all the best solar products were made by Sharp in Japan or by German companies. And the founder of SunTech Power, Dr. Xi, said, they're so expensive. Why don't we just make them in China? And by doing that, that will reduce the cost. And so that's what he did. He, he started a big company to manufacture quality solar panels in China and drastically reduce the cost. So I think in the mini split uh, heat pump area where you have dominance by some legacy players in high cost countries that there are definitely uh, these mini splits made in China, but they haven't come here to get ULs approved and for sale in the US. And that's a business. That's a huge business opportunity. I, I, I'm interested in that. I think I, I heard the head of research and development of the California Energy Commission give a, a talk a few months ago. And she said that by 2030, we have to retrofit every building in California has to get rid of natural gas. We have to go all electric in our entire building stock. Just think of how challenging that is in the next 12 years right. to do that. But guess what? What a huge business opportunity that is for somebody, right? Some entrepreneur. And if, if California has to do that, get in there now, start figuring it out. Try to figure that out. So those all excite me. I think, honestly, the more I look into any of these issues and problems, there's just massive business so opportunities. Much opportunity. It it's is incredible. It is. And they're jobs, creating local jobs, doing valuable work in the communities and putting things that already exist, just thinking of them in a different way and, and launching them. So I, I think there's actually a lot 
of business ideas for entrepreneurs out there. We just have to maybe look at it at, from that lens of, you know, how could my business be helping the solution of the climate rather than doing nothing towards it? We just need to be creative. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I think we got to tap into our inner child and look at things from a different lens. We get so used to being an adult and not thinking of things from a different perspective. And when you get your childlike thinking cap on, it's amazing what you could accomplish. Just, you know, I was in your restroom before we started recording and I could not believe that the thing that you had on top of the, the toilet that where you could wash your hands with the water that's just going to be wasted. What a brilliant idea. Why doesn't everyone have one of those? Can you explain, just real quick, explain what I'm talking about? Because I'm not doing a very good job of explaining sure, it. Sure, sure. Um, uh, it's called uh, Sink Twice, I believe the product is. But I saw that in Japan where um, it's very common in Japan when you flush the toilet, instead of having the, the reservoir fill up with, again, that clean water, it's actually a sink on top of the toilet that you can wash your hands in. And after you wash your hands, the the, the gray water, having touched your hands, goes into the toilet reservoir uh, to be used in the next flush. And that saves, you know, two gallons of water each time. And so I happen to see that product. <laughs> Why does not everyone have this? I mean, I, I, I just don't get it. Like that is, I'm going to get, I'm, I'm, I'm getting that. That's sorry. I just like, yeah, so yeah. simple yet so powerful. Exactly. It's not like brain surgery, but it's really clever. Right. And I super clever. I think that we're just not used to doing that. Or maybe we always viewed water as being free. You know, and so that it didn't matter if we waste. There was no reason to save it because it was free, which it's not true, uh, especially now as we suffer from the drought. But we, as a culturally, we're just our build. When we build buildings, we don't think that way. And yet, how easy is it to just have a mindset shift and shift and say, "Oh, that should be standard," and then boom, that could be the standard way of doing things, and it's so much smarter. And that was just looking at you know my travels through Japan, seeing it, and I said, oh, this is a cool idea. This is this is great. And so when we had the drought in California four or five years ago, and I saw one of those for sale, I said, oh, I'm going to get one of those, yeah. for, put it in my bathroom, and uh, and wash my hands that way. I'm, so it makes a ton of sense. It worked perfectly fine, and uh, I'm going to order one as well. So we talked about how the individual can make a an impact and contribute. We talked about how business owners can do the same. And we even talked about how an entrepreneur who maybe hasn't even come up with their concept can start to really think about what they might be able to do and how they might be able to contribute through innovation or tapping into their own abilities and talents. As you said, how can a leader of a business help? Somebody that works for a company, it could be a large corporation or even a small corporation. What suggestion would you have for that type of person? That's a great question. I think that leaders of businesses have a very special role to the tone at the top. You know, we hear that often and uh, the leader sets the tone and what we value as a company and whether we care at all about uh, being part of the solution. Do we want to be a part of the solution or are we going to stay and be part of the problem? Right. And I think that the leader, if the mindset is different and I think they, they would know that they have that opportunity to reframe a problem into an opportunity and say, hey, you know, I've heard from our staff that, and I personally believe that we can do more. And I want to tap into the broader thinking about what the company, what people like to do. Really, I, I do think that bottoms up movement, you know, the top starts to say, yeah, you change the tone at the top, but then you allow the bottoms up to come up with some tangible ideas so that they own it because the top, you know, you could drive it all the way from the top all the time, but it's so much better to get 
uh, engagement from employees and the sense of ownership, sense of pride that our company is part of the solution. I don't have to quit this company because, and go somewhere else to another company who's morally aligned with me. This company here, my company is morally aligned and I'm actually got a role and a volunteer task force to be doing X. So I think that adjusting the tone at the top and re, re, finding the right opportunity to launch that, an initiative and that's part of the solution and then tapping into that talent that invariably exists and the energy that exists. It doesn't have to be that 100% of the people buy in. It can be that 5% of the people. I've been on a, a green team at some, some companies in the past where the, uh, the, the tone at the top was we value sustainability and we want green teams in each group and division. And you guys go identify what you want to work on. And I remember this is probably back in uh, 2007 and eight where we just said, look, we want to print on two sides of a piece of paper. We think it's wasteful how much printing is going on on our laser printers. Let's do two-sided printing. And it was that was a big idea back then to reprogram people's you know, printer drivers <laughs> to print on two-sided. Silly. So and it, simple. It happens a lot more now. But back then, those were the things that employees come up in, which I, I think does uh, create a sense of like, oh, well, I actually recommended it. And then the company did it. And it feel that that type of empowerment and impact gives them the confidence to recommend something else and something else. Create an environment where contributions are welcomed and not only are they welcomed, but there's action taken as a result of these ideas and suggestions. And you're right. A lot of times it coming bottom up is the best way. Let's face it. We have a lot more opportunities, a lot more ideas, a lot more brains at work than maybe just the few brains at the top. Well, and I, I think uh, another thing uh, beyond doing that, you know, setting some direction on energy use in the company, there are, I believe, over 200 of the world's biggest companies who, uh, like Microsoft, and who have announced that we will be 100% use a procure with 100% renewable energy, or we're going to power our businesses by 100% renewable energy. We're going to move away completely from fossil fuels by X date. I think that type of statement can also help from the CEO level where you just put a, actually, it's not even a big hairy goal. It's not that hard anymore to do that. It used to be much harder nowadays. Uh, I think if you did it and put your mind to it, you could actually get there reasonably quickly. But I think those types of initiatives can really help galvanize the, the forces underneath to tactically get that done in ways that would be, again, fossil fuel burning is the leading cause of climate change Big businesses contribute greatly to that. So if big businesses or all business could make that commitment, just imagine what the world would be, how fast we could get there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.